Okay, well, um, I've now got it run into the camera, uh, running through the cam link, so we shall see if that works. Uh, could be the mixer deciding to present issues for the first time ever. Um, so that should work for you. And uh, those of you who are on uh, the recorded podcast, I'll just cut that out by the time it makes it out. But anyway, so Biden gives a speech and he says uh, that basically uh, what you have is a situation where democracy itself is on the ballot, essentially saying that election deniers are running as Republicans all over the country, saying that Republicans are planning to deny the outcome of this upcoming midterm election. It's a very strange thing why he would go to the polls and and try to do that, Uh, why he would uh, make that the centerpiece of his uh, last minute campaign for the midterms. So it is uh, really a, a remarkable thing. So this speech was really a non-event. Why he went to the train station, why he would do a speech from the train station, God only knows. Uh, but he did that. And uh, well, I don't think it'll have much effect. Uh, now the polls are saying, you know, the, the, this whole idea of polling is so strange because now all of the big pollsters are coming out and they're saying that what you're looking at is a Democrat wipeout, uh, that the Democrats are going to be completely wiped out in the midterms, that they don't stand a chance, uh, that the Republicans are going to take the Senate, they're going to take the House, uh, they're going to take lower uh, ticket races all over the country, statewide races, local races. Why is that? And, and you have to ask yourself, if the pollsters' uh, polls were not predictive of what their same polls would say today when they took them, say, in July or August. And they're, and they're not predictive of what the election outcome will be. Then what use are they? It's, it's not as though things in this country have radically changed from August to today. I mean, frankly, that the weather hasn't even changed that much. It's been a pretty mild uh, November here so far, in October so far, the weather hasn't even changed very much. I've had one cold snap the whole time. Very little has changed in the country since August. Inflation remains high. Interest rates have gone up. The economy's worsened a bit in some ways. In other ways, they claim that it's gotten better. They say the GDP is now growing again. Of course, those numbers could very easily be revised down mysteriously after the midterms. So you have to ask yourself, what use are these polls anyway if they don't predict anything? And the other part is I've never put much stock in polls. We know that the polls are uh, manipulated and, and, and they can be made to show whatever they'd like them to show. The other phenomenon that I pointed out on this show when we first started it up and that I've pointed out for years on uh, the show uh, when it was on censored.tv is that I've pointed out that One of the things the media will do is that as you close in to say 90 days out on an election, one of the things they will do is uh, make the polls look close. And the reason they do this is because what they are aiming to do is get the campaigns to spend more money on ads. So whoever is losing their lead in the race will spend more to get their lead back. Whoever is regaining will say, well, it's not a law's cause. We better spend our money and, and buy some ads. Because most of these polls, most all of them really, have some association to the media. Whether it's a New York Times poll, whether it's an ABC poll, sometimes they'll team up with an outside party like a university to do the poll. But in any event, these are entities which are dependent on ad dollars. And to varying degrees, uh, some of these broadcasts, uh, certainly in the case of cable news, something like 80% of their non-election year revenue comes from Big Pharma. But during election years, a great deal of their money comes from political candidates. And so that is uh, one of the things that you see. And it's why I never put much stock in those polls that said the Democrats were making a comeback and uh, Republicans were in trouble and it's it's all over. It's swung because of abortion. Abortion has never been a big election issue. It has certainly never been a midterms issue. It really hasn't. I mean, look back at 2020. Do you, do you remember in, I mean, she didn't really even make it into the year 2020, as I recall, but you remember uh, a candidate named Kristen Gillibrand, 
She's a senator from New York. Kristen Gillibrand is a woman who basically became a senator from New York because she was dating New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. And in the course of dating him, there was a situation where he beat her up pretty badly. I mean, she had bruises. She had a black eye. And this is well known within the New York political circles, within the donor classes and all of that. And after Cuomo beat up Kristen Gillibrand, who was not a senator at this time, he apologized to her by buying her this $9,000 Tiffany necklace. Except when he went to go buy her the $9,000 Tiffany necklace, the story is, accidentally, he pulled out the wrong credit card. He pulled out the campaign credit card rather than his personal credit card. And because of that, this charge for Tiffany, nobody noticed it by the time it got reported to the FEC. So then it got reported to the Federal Election Commission. And people say, well, what's a $9,000 expense at Tiffany doing on your election spending? That doesn't make much sense. And he quickly remediated the accounting issue and reimbursed the campaign and made that all well. Uh, but it was a situation which he had to keep her quiet. And the way that he did that is that he anointed her to this Senate seat, the same Senate seat that was once filled by Hillary Clinton when she was in the Senate. And so that's the whole backstory in this. But Kristen Gillibrand, after becoming a senator, thought that she'd run for president. And the Democrat Party in 2019, because most of these candidates, again, didn't make it till you know the, the, the final days. I mean, remember, Kamala Harris, now the vice president, did not even make it to the Iowa caucus. Her campaign was so disastrous, she didn't even make it to Iowa. She did so poorly with the black vote as to even do more poorly than Mayor Pete. Of course, blacks are no fans, at least ostensibly, of gays. And Mayor Pete was gay and he did very poorly with blacks. But Kamala Harris did even more poorly than Mayor Pete. She was essentially below zero. Yes, there is such a thing in favorability. If you have people that hate you so much and so few people that like you at all, you can be below zero on the favorability ratings. And that's what she was with the black vote. She went in all in on Iowa. That was her strategy shift come fall of 2019. And she couldn't even make it to the Iowa caucuses. Now, they had a bunch of other candidates in that race who were single issue candidates. So you had uh, like Hickenlooper and you had uh, the crazy governor from Washington State, uh, Jay Inslee, who were single issue candidates for climate change. And same thing with Tom Steyer, who was one of the billionaire candidates. You had single issue candidates on immigration, like uh, what's that guy's name? Julio Sanchez. No, no, it's a uh, Oh, the congressman who's got the twin brother. Anyway, he had some single-issue candidates on immigration. Beto shifted into becoming a single-issue candidate on gun control. Yang, somebody points out here in the in the chat, was single-issue on universal basic income, free money. Ironically, he got his way on that, and what a disaster it has been. Thanks at the end of the day to Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> which is something nobody could have predicted. And so these single issue candidates all failed, but the, but one of them who failed spectacularly and very quickly was Kristen Gillibrand. She was a single issue candidate on abortion. She announced her race in front of Trump Tower. She said, we're going to throw Donald Trump in jail, all of this stuff. And, and she failed very quickly. Of course, there was uh, Amy Klobuchar, who initially came out as a single issue candidate on global warming, and she announced her single issue global warming candidacy in the middle of a blizzard in Minnesota which was really something to watch. So abortion, as demonstrated by Kristen Gillibrand, has never been a big election issue. The only people who really care much about abortion, I mean, enough to even consider it on the list of things they'll vote over, are young single women. And young single women are a relatively small group. Um, every day, fewer of them are single, uh, at least, you know, some of them, of course, turn 18, they become voting age, but some of them end up married or engaged or otherwise. And so it's a small block of people. They have a very low turnout. Democrat Party does reasonably well with them, but it's this little small group. And, and it's not even at the top of their list in terms of voting. 
It is not even at the top of their list. And so it was always a strange thing to think that all of a sudden, because of this Supreme Court decision on abortion, people had just said to hell with inflation, uh, to hell with the economy sucking, to hell with not being able to uh, buy a house because interest rates have doubled. I mean, think of these poor saps in this unfortunate position where they said, we have to save up for a down payment on a house. And increasingly, you need like $100,000 to to make the down payment. I mean, you need like a significant sum of money. And it's like, well, uh, we're getting eaten alive by inflation, but we'll keep saving. Oh, the bank's not giving us any interest, but we'll keep saving. Our healthcare premiums have gone up 20, 30% year over year, but we'll keep saving. And then all of a sudden, housing prices go up simultaneously with interest rates to a point where now they can buy, you would think, more house because prices have gone down, but interest rates have increased so much that, say, on a $100,000 mortgage, the per annum interest expense has gone from $3,000, say 300 a month on the house, which is, uh, you can maybe swing it, to six or seven or $8,000. This whole idea of stamping out inflation has always been a strange one to me because you have to imagine if you had no inflation in the country for basically 15 years, 1% inflation or something, you know, I mean, virtually none. Is it the worst thing ever to have 10% inflation for a year? And if the measures you take to wipe out that 10% inflation lead to mass unemployment, have you improved anything for anybody? Now, from where the Fed sits, they say, well, yes, because we control the precipitous decline in the bond market that's caused by inflation. They don't like that precipitous decline in the bond market because it makes bonds uh, essentially increases the, the, the cost of borrowing for the federal government as they ramp up these ridiculous budgets. But I don't know about you, but, but personally for me, and I know most people out there, it's a lot easier for me to contend with grocery prices being 10% higher or even 20 or 30% higher than it is for me to contend with not having a job. And I think that's probably the same throughout the economy. If you have $0 a month coming in, that's a hell of a lot harder to deal with than paying 10% more at the grocery store or 30% more or 100% more, which was the case on certain items at the grocery store, where like a can of soup at Giant Foods I saw was $4.35. I'm not joking. A can of Progresso soup was $4.35. I don't think I've ever paid more than a dollar for a can of soup like that. Maybe I've paid a dollar and 10 cents or something before. So it's never, ever made a lot of sense. We're, we're in a position now where you could actually have a race for New York governor. It's Kathy Hochul or Hochul against Lee Zeldin. And she has now made her single issue in the last days, mandatory vaccines for children. And when you look at the numbers on this, nobody likes the idea of giving their kids these shots. Virtually nobody. Something like 5% of kids have received COVID booster shots. That means that it's a 90, that's what you call in politics a 95-5 issue. You don't run on a 95-5 issue on the side of the five, ever. Ever. You just don't do that. Doesn't make any sense. It's called progresso, progresso soup, not progressive soup, by the way, uh, chat, chat room there. Um, so it's never made much sense, but I, I want to go over this clip here. This is Jordan Peterson on Russell Brand's show, uh, and he's talking about having a KYC policy, a know-your-customer policy at Twitter. And Jordan Peterson has been roundly criticized for this uh, by people on the right, who have rightly pointed out that uh, if you have a problem with the troll comments, all you have to do is... And this was never a setting you could implement when I was on Twitter, but you can you can basically ban replies from people who you don't follow. And that's one way of avoiding them. Uh, but there's more to it than simply whether or not you enjoy the troll comments on Twitter that come from the anonymous 
accounts. There's more to it than that. And I think Jordan Peterson here is is more right than he is wrong. And I'm going to go over this with you here. Here's the clip. Uh, Jordan Peterson on Russell Brand show that airs on Rumble. Here it is. I think the large tech companies should be required to put in know your customer laws. They should ban anonymous accounts. But in this way, imagine that you have a section for comments where it's real human beings that are verified. And you have another section underneath that's for anonymous troll demons. And if you want to go visit their hell and see what their resentful minds are spewing into the public landscape, then you can. Otherwise, you stick to the real human beings. And I don't know if Musk and the other people who are running the big social media networks understand the pathology that's associated with this online commentary well enough to control it. So we'll see. Well, there there he is uh, talking about that. Now, there is there is this kind of reality that basically everything bad, everything that is that is actually bad about uh, the, the social media, virtually everything that is actually disastrous uh, that goes on on social on social media is uh, something that comes as a result of these what he calls anonymous troll demons. No, you think about it. I mean, foreign election interference, what is it really? It's a bunch of bot accounts that go on and say things. And if you actually think that that's effectual, I happen not to. But if you do, well, having a, a requirement that in order to get algorithmic reach, you are a real person, well, that's now a winner. You know, the other part of this is is as follows, and, and I think it's an important one. There was a long time in which I spent a lot of energy and I don't I don't really spend this energy any longer, but I would say, you know, MAGA grandma 09040611, you're the reason that conservatives are being hunted down like dogs. Grandpa Jim loves Trump 4060911, you know, or whatever, fill in the blank, whatever uh, pseudonymous or anonymous uh, handle you have, you are the reason that conservatives are being censored. You are the reason that conservatives are being banned. And they'd say, and they'd say, explain. And I would tell them, look, when you go out there and you won't say whatever it is that you want to say online under your actual name, what you are doing is you are seeding the point. You are, you are seeding the point. Seeding with a C for those of you with a smaller vocabulary. You are you are basically short for conceding the point or admitting to the left uh, that your ideas are in fact, as they claim, so contemptible, so evil, so racist, so bad, whatever term you want to use, whatever superlative negative term you want to use, that in fact, you dare not utter them under your real name. And then these people who who can't often who just and it's to no fault of their own, but they don't possess the intellectual capacity to abstract something out in this way that is necessary to perform this kind of analysis. They would then say, yeah, but I'll get fired if I say this with my real name. And you say, but but don't you get it? Don't you get it? The reason that you can be fired, that you will be fired, is that you won't say it under your real name. The reason that the left is so emboldened is because for the last six, seven, eight years or 10 years or more, God only knows, it's been essentially an environment in which people who number in the hundreds, however many conservative commentators there are, people who number in the hundreds, are willing to say what they think. And they put their name on it, and they say what they think. And sometimes their name is not exactly real. There are a lot of verified uh, pro-Trump accounts out there, and you say, oh, that's um, John St. Clair. And that's not their real name, but it's more of a stage name. But in any event, but they have their real name and they say what they think. And then it's the entire world of the left online and elsewhere. 
and you have their high profile commentators and they have their troll bots too. They're, they're, they're anonymous people, but they also enjoy, they also enjoy huge swaths of the public who might have 30 followers, but are happy to log on under their real name and say what they really think. And so it's a silent majority up against a loud minority. And it's not such a minority, really, as demonstrated by Election Day. That's why you don't take anything for granted in the midterms election, in the midterm elections. I know I don't have to tell you this, but you go out and you vote. I hope I don't need to say this. Vote in person is what I would recommend. Uh, that way you're, you're there, your votes counted that day. It's just simpler and, and I would recommend it. Now, uh, now I, I hope I don't get indicted for saying I prefer voting in person when I vote. I would hope you would vote in person. I hope that's not an indictable offense now, but there you go. Um, I hope I don't get sued for saying I think you ought to vote in person. But that's my opinion. Now, so it's this, it's this silent majority. And they say, well, we're the silent majority. We're here. We're standing strong. Hashtag MAGA Grandma Q44. Against Ethel Bernstein. Against Dan Brown. Against John Heilman. Against whoever. And you see this, this fear, this seeding of the left uh, based on the fear is, is what allows them to do what they do. And it's not all of you, by the way. So it is a matter of, it is a matter of a, a point about, is it a point about bravery? Is it a point about tactics? I don't know. But the whole reason that this has gotten so bad, the whole reason that people are comfortable throwing one political side in jail on concocted charges or hunting them down like animals, the whole reason that we live in that world that's gotten progressively worse since 2016 and got really gotten worse since 2017 and gotten even worse since 18 and even worse after that, the whole reason is because the people on our side aren't willing to say what they think. And just do it under their name. You know, if you if you said what you thought under your real name, you'd say, well, I get fired. Well, guess what? If everyone did that, you wouldn't get fired. You can't fire half the company tomorrow for no reason. You can't. So it has always been a problem. And if you look at anything, virtually anything, you want to talk about actual nutcases that get uh, what they call radicalized online. You know, the QAnon guy who decides he's going to send bombs in the mail or some nut job on the left who thinks they're going to go shoot up a baseball field or or whatever. The actual, you know, 0.01% mentally ill nutcase who really gets radicalized. Well, that's a lot harder for him to do if there is something approximating a know your customer policy. There's a lot uh, fewer of his ilk who are going to get him all ramped up in comment sections with their own anonymous accounts. A lot fewer of them. So frankly, I like Jordan Peterson's idea. I think it's a wonderful idea. I would love that it, if it forced people on our own side to, to come out and, and just say what they think uh, under their real names. And hey, maybe you'd be a little bit more measured about what you say. Would that be such a bad thing? Would that hurt your verbal acuity? so much, I actually think it would help. It would help your, your capabilities. It would help you say what you really mean. Uh, so I agree with Jordan Peterson in large part here about all this. I think it's a, an excellent idea. Now, uh, you know, otherwise, in terms of what is going on at Twitter right now, I, again, I'm in a wait and see mode. A lot of people are uh, expecting things to happen in a week that shouldn't happen in a week. And this has been my approach the entire time. From the first moment that this emerged as a possibility that Elon Musk would acquire Twitter, my basic opinion was that I said, I think he will do it and it'll take six months for the deal to close. Now, if I recall, uh, I think the initial news came out in about April. I could be wrong. And I think that it took a, almost exactly six months to close. 
And there was some litigation in the meantime, and that's perfectly normal in this kind of an acquisition. Um, a hostile takeover, as it were. Litigation is standard. In fact, I'm a little bit surprised there wasn't even more litigation, maybe countersuits and the like. Uh, so this is pretty standard. Now, so, so my prediction in terms of the timeline, it wasn't even really a prediction. It was just informing you that these kind of things tend to take about six months to close. It did. Um, so I'm in a wait and see mode. Now, uh, the developing news on this, however, uh, Elon Musk plans to lay off 50% of Twitter staff by the end of the week. That's what I have been reading. There are numerous reports out on this from Bloomberg and others. Uh, and he's going to be ending Twitter's work from anywhere policy. He has this one guy who is in charge of censorship, this Yoel Roth, who really seems to be a, a, a miscreant, a, a leftist miscreant. I have to be honest about this, just looking at his tweets and his unhinged uh, proclamations to the public. I don't know how this guy's still in there, but he is. Um, and we have a development as far as charging, and the plan would be to charge $8 a month for verification. Uh, essentially ending the policy in which um, some people are verified, some people aren't. It seemed there wasn't a lot of reason behind all that. Um, essentially, verification would just mean to say this is the real person here. Now, I think that has a number of benefits. I mean, for instance, when Jacob Wohl was banned from Twitter, myself, I was verified. Uh, I had about 180,000 followers. Now, uh, I was banned, but all kinds of other accounts impersonating me, impersonating members of my family, all of this stuff, they were not banned. So they go on tweeting things. In fact, there was a period of time in which, you know, they had those Google info boxes that if you're anybody on the right or you're anybody who's skeptical about vaccines or anything else, they totally slander you. Uh, but one of the things they do is generally they'll provide a link to your social media with a little icon. Google's actual link to my Twitter account sent people to an imposter Twitter account. So it'd be great if the imposter accounts just didn't have any reach. Why is that such a bad thing? So we shall see. We shall see uh, the way that that goes. We shall see the way that that goes. Uh, a few updates here on the Paul Pelosi situation. A few uh, emerging details that have come out. I want to cover those here. Uh, by the way, I'm going to be answering questions from the chat here at, at the end. Uh, so put in your questions, whether they're about Predator DC, whether they're about what we're talking about on today's episode or fitness or politics or relationships, anything else, happy to answer them. Uh, but just a few small details coming out here uh, recently. Uh, number one, uh, the suspect did voluntarily speak to the FBI after being Mirandized. Uh, very bad idea, by the way. You never want to speak to the FBI uh, at all. I mean, for everybody watching this show, I, I hope I don't have to tell you this. You don't talk to the cops. You don't talk to the FBI. It is legally perilous for you to do that. Now, don't be some moronic sovereign citizen either. Roll down your window, keep your hands where officers can see them, hand them your ID if you're pulled over at a traffic stop. If they ask your name, tell them your name. If they ask you where you're headed, tell them where you're headed. But... That, that has to do with what's been enumerated in case law as, as being required by law anyway. I'm not telling you to be some moronic sovereign citizen that says, I don't have a name. I'm not a person. I'm a, an entity or whatever these idiots say that you see on these cringeworthy videos. But what I'm telling you is you, you, FBI knocks on your door. You don't speak to them. You just don't. You don't have to. Remember that? You don't have to. Even if they contact you and they say, you're not a target. They just want to clear something else up about something. Else. You talk to your lawyer. You say, I can't talk to you. I have to speak to my lawyer. I'll have my lawyer reach out to you. Uh, if you don't have a lawyer yet, that's okay. You go find one. But you never, ever, ever talk to the FBI, especially the FBI, but really any law enforcement, because it's just something that's too dangerous. Remember that many interviews with the FBI that people do are not recorded. Like in the case of Michael Flynn. It's just memorialized by a 302 summary report after the fact. And those agents said Michael Flynn lied. And they said, this is what he said to us. And it's in a report. They sign it. And that's what's believed in court. And there's no recording. 
So it was dumb for him to even answer the door to the FBI. Really unbelievable that he did that. Um, so no matter what, no matter how personable they seem, how nice they seem, you never, ever, ever, ever do that. You just don't. You just don't. Um, so he did. He voluntarily spoke to the FBI. He talked about uh, in this interview, supposedly, how he wanted to interrogate Nancy Pelosi and break her kneecaps and put her into Congress in a wheelchair. Uh, so a real mentally ill sicko, obviously. Um, he is a, a Canadian national who's in the country illegally. So normally that would mean under San Francisco's process that uh, after he's let out of jail, despite being a violent criminal, they won't turn him over to ICE. They will, if needed, let him out the back door of the courthouse, as has happened in uh, numerous cases where illegal aliens from south of the border have then gone out and uh, committed further crimes, in some cases killing Americans because of this policy. Something tells me they'll make an exception for him. Uh, just as it seems they have made an exception when it comes to his bail. Uh, most people attack. The cops don't even show up in San Francisco any longer in violent attacks. Countless instances you can read about on Twitter where somebody's violently attacked in San Francisco. They call the police. They say, we're not coming out. You go to the hospital if you're injured. We're just not going to bother with it. Because basically you have these, these hooligans, these hoodlums, these bums, these ragamuffins running around town psychotic, schizophrenic, on meth, on heroin, you name it, just going berserk. It's like walking into some place for the criminally insane in which the criminally insane run the asylum and just pretending it's a normal city. And, and they're armed with weapons and meth and heroin too, and needles everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a hellscape. So they make certain exceptions, of course, when you are the husband of Nancy Pelosi, Capitol Police, it turns out, did have surveillance cameras at the home, but no one was watching those cameras, nor did the cameras apparently have any sort of alarm system set up where they can detect uh, heat or motion or what have you. Uh, the Capitol Police will not be releasing the footage from those cameras. That's what they have stated. And important to remember, the Capitol Police are immune. They are immune from the Freedom of Information Act by law. They are the only, they are the only uh, agency that I am aware of that is immune to the Freedom of Information Act. The CIA is not immune to the Freedom of Information Act. The FBI is not immune to FOIA. Now, they, of course, say no a lot of times. And even when you sue, you don't have a lot of success. But they're not just blanket immune. But in the case of the Capitol Police extending from the legislative branch, I guess the way they see it, they are immune from Freedom of Information Act requests. They don't answer them. They don't have a process for submitting them. Um, occasionally, somebody will get some information out of the Capitol Police, but they are essentially totally immune from FOIA. Uh, further, the San Francisco DA, uh, who is a, a new DA, I, I guess, they, they replaced their old DA, but they still have all these assistant DAs who are really bad. Uh, she has come out now and said that the uh, body camera footage will not be released. The body camera footage from the officer. Uh, why that is, I don't know. It's just, it, again, it's, there's just exceptions that are made um, when you are the Pelosi's in San Francisco. That's all. So it is... Uh, <laughs> It is really uh, something to watch. Now, if you watched the last episode of the show or listened, uh, you know I talked about the situation of fentanyl. And basically, I, I basically posed the question. I said, how is it the case that every time they do a fentanyl bust, they say that the guy had enough fentanyl to kill people numbering in the millions? Like, how could that be possible? Because... You do the math on that and you say, well, those are just ones they've caught. And if that could kill 15 million people, like how could there be any drug users left? How could there be any opioid addicts left? Wouldn't they all just be dead? And the other part is, how could that make sense from a business model standpoint? Because if you just killed your customers day one and they never, ever became repeat customers, that would be one hell of a business. If you never, ever had any repeat customers, that'd be one hell of a business. So it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Now people would say, well, they cut it later on. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you think that some 
crack dealer, some drug dealer is like an expert in pharmaceutical manufacturing and that they can sit there with laboratory precision and titrate something that is like nuclear level deadly into what would be considered cut? Uh, I don't think so. I think you'd have a lot of dead drug dealers like on the spot. So I looked into this and my guess was that essentially what was happening is that it turns out that they bust the drug dealer, they test the tablets or they test the powder in a field reagent test kit and it turns pink or it turns blue or whatever and that means it has fentanyl in it and they say, okay, this is fentanyl. And then what they do is they then say, given how much of this powder is here, how many people could it kill assuming, and this is the important part, assuming that it is of the same purity and potency of pharmaceutical grade fentanyl. And that assumption is, is what is wrong. And so I looked into this a little bit further. I looked into the DEA reports. Those of you watching can see an excerpt here on the screen. And so uh, I, I figured this out and it turns out my assumption seems to basically be correct. Uh, the DEA reports say that Mexican fentanyl, even when sold in so-called pure powder form, is in fact only 7 to 12% pure. Well, what does that mean? Well, to give you an idea, if you were to buy an over-the-counter drug like Claritin or uh, Unisom or a generic pharmaceutical drug, the purity would be, the low mark would be 98% for an over-the-counter or for a generic drug. 98%. If it's something like fentanyl, because it is so powerful, I would imagine the purity and the, the precision around that is even higher. At least if it is 98.5, then it's 98.5 every time. Now that's interesting. So that's Mexican fentanyl. Now there's vice documentaries that show these outdoor Mexican fentanyl labs where they order in the precursor chemicals to Mexico and they're cooking this stuff like in a big rusty vat outside and it's like, geez, this can't be very precise. Or like put in three pinches of that and a jug of this. And it's like, you know, not very precise at all. And you think, how precise could that be? So that's where you get the 7 to 12% purity. Okay. Everything else in it is filler or just, you know, byproduct that comes out in the production process. Now, what about this so-called pure fentanyl that comes from what claimed to be professional pharmaceutical manufacturing uh, companies in China. What about that stuff? Well, we have data on that as well that I've dug up from these publicly available DEA reports. It turns out that fewer than 1% of fentanyl seizures from parcel shipments into the U.S. from chemical companies in China had purities that exceeded 90%. So of all those shipments they bust coming from Chinese chemical companies, and maybe they mark it as, you know, this is actually a fertilizer, not fentanyl, or maybe it's, uh, you know, some benign chemical and not fentanyl. Well, guess what? In, in those cases, still only five out of 508 seizures that were tested with, you know, uh, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, let's say, or some more precise uh, methodology in a lab? Well, again, fewer than 1% of those. So five out of 508 had purities over 90%. Most of them had purities in the same range as the Mexican fentanyl that was seized. So despite being made in a lab, maybe they'd see 20, maybe they'd see 30 here and there, but it tended to be more like 12, 15%. 20 kind of seemed to be the high mark throughout the years, as I've read, and it's changed year to year. So what does this all mean? Well, what it equates to is that most of the fentanyl that is seized coming into the United States, it is really uh, roughly tantamount, and, it's, and I say roughly, I put emphasis on the word roughly, tantamount to what is known as China white heroin, which is which is pure heroin. It's, it looks white. It's a white powder as opposed to some brown powder or some brown chunky stuff or as opposed to uh, black tar heroin, which looks like black tar and is typically smoked on foil, but can also be injected if you're really uh, uh, desperate. Now, 
That's the chemical reality of this drug in its form as it actually exists coming into the country, is that it is nowhere near the strength of pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl. Now, other part to remember, even if you robbed a pharmacy or something, the fentanyl that would be put into, say, a fentanyl lollipop or a fentanyl pouch uh, for extreme pain management, hospice care, and things like that, well, even though the actual chemical is 98% pure, it is very particularly dosed into these products so that, yeah, if you take the whole package, you're dead. I mean, no question about that, but it is not as though they ship a pure you know, brick of powder to some pharmacy to compound on their own. So I just wanted to provide some clarity there. Now, are there other problems with fentanyl? Is it a much shorter supply chain than would be the case with heroin? Yes, it seems that way. It seems that the supply chain is greatly streamlined rather than having to move uh, opioid or, or opium poppies or move the wax that is scraped off of the opium poppies from Afghanistan, move it through Europe, move it through ports uh, out of a landlocked country somehow uh, into Mexico to be then converted to heroin and then moved in the United States, or whether it's coming from Southeast Asia, which is actually where most of the China white heroin came from. It wasn't from, uh, it wasn't from China. In fact, it was from Cambodia. It was from Laos. It was from Vietnam, and it was from Thailand, for the most part and came from kind of militant groups there, typically. I read a whole book on it recently. So this stuff is really roughly tantamount to China white heroin. However, and this is a caveat, is that it does seem to be much more available throughout much more of the country than China white heroin ever was. Of course, that is true. So from what I understand, heroin dealers would drive some great distance to go find China white heroin if they could get their hands on it actual China white heroin. That's what drug addicts would do. Most of the time they couldn't. It wasn't exactly plentiful. Uh, You had to be connected to get your hands on it. You have to be connected to get your hands on fentanyl posing as China white heroin or fentanyl posing as any number of other things. It doesn't seem so. But look, whatever the case is, I think it's good to at least know what the facts are here. And you also have to understand that law enforcement agencies, social services agencies, uh, other parts of government, they have an interest in promoting buzzwords like fentanyl. If they can call every drug fentanyl for the next five years, they are in a position where now uh, they can uh, raise a lot more money from the federal government, uh, get more money passed through Congress. It's a buzzword. It's similar to that of human trafficking. Human trafficking is a big problem. Nobody wants human trafficking going on. What's the reality of human trafficking? Well, the reality of human trafficking is that most human trafficking cases are not what you see in some documentary of, you know, hundreds of Chinese sex slaves being shipped into a port in a container, but rather most human trafficking is a black gang member who has three, four, five girls essentially operating as an old school pimp, travels from town to town, pimping them out. Equally horrifying, uh, but not the image that people get in their minds that their daughter is going to be kidnapped one day out of their rich white suburb and then be pimped out. Has that happened? Of course. We've seen a lot of this sort of thing uh, running the Predator DC program. But promoting the buzzword, rather than just calling what you see as pimping and pandering, pimping and pandering and dealing with it at the local level, but by making it into a much bigger campaign, now you have nonprofits, now you have conferences involved, now you have grants that are handed out to a small county outside of Houston, as opposed to uh, being dependent locally, it has now federal money coming in and cool gadgets and places to travel for training and all of that. So you have to remember when you see these buzzwords, And there are obvious questions that emerge like, wait a second, how could every drug dealer have enough to kill 4 million people and they're not all dead? Now we have to start to look a little more deeply and figure out what's really happening under the surface. And I think I've at least started to do that on this fentanyl issue. But I want to go to your questions here in the chat if you have any. Um, It says uh, purification and validation is very expensive. The Chinese don't want to spend extra. They don't care if the byproducts have garbage. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Very true. Uh, 
you know, the media, this is the other part, the media is happy to help the government agencies sensationalize things like this because they have clicks in it. It makes sense from their standpoint too. Uh, Martin here asks, uh, used to wait lift for around 10 years, developed a spine disease that stopped me walking for five years, fixed now, but lost almost all of my gym motivations. Any tips to motivate? Well, you just have to start. And the key thing is that you start in a way that is small and sustainable. I recommend you start with four days a week in the gym. I think you do two days. Basically, what you end up doing is two days on, one day off, two days on, one day off. Occasionally, you're going to need two days off. But you have to start. Once you start, the hardest part is starting, but once you start, it will become something in which you have some momentum. It will become something in which you have some momentum. Uh, I have a question here from Draconian Methods. That's the username in the chat. Hi, Jacob. I just graduated uh, with uh, finance. I do not want to live in a city. Is there any hope for me aside from working at some small town Edward Jones type shop? How to work independently after a series of... Oh, yeah, I think there is. You know, here's what I'd recommend for you um, is that... There's a whole world of professionals, white collar professionals that maybe went to school in San Diego. In fact, I've had a lawyer like this um, and, and he moves to Cleveland and you say like, I wonder why he moved to Cleveland. And it makes a lot of sense because if he was good enough to practice law in San Diego, he's definitely good enough to be a really top ranking person in Cleveland or in Ohio, let's say generally. And so you move to a place like Cleveland or you move to a place like Columbus, Ohio, probably better than Cleveland. You move outside of town, 20, 30 minutes outside of town. You move to a really nice uh, suburb where there's no crime, there's no depravity that you have to worry about. You're outside of town. And with work from home, this is increasingly an appealing option. And you can work at big companies that are headquartered in Columbus, or that are headquartered in um, Pittsburgh, or that are headquartered in uh, other places around the country, depending on where you'd like to live, the climate that you enjoy, or whatever the case might be. And the reality is that if you were competitive enough to be able to consider uh, working in a place like New York, or working in a place like London, or working in a place like uh, you know one of these top-tier uh, metros, then you're really going to be good compared with the people that are generally making their way into Pittsburgh or making their way into Cleveland or Columbus or making their way into um, St. Petersburg, Florida, or, or what have you. And so that will give you the ability to be very competitive. Your money is always going to go a lot further there. Whatever the inflation rate is, it's always going to be higher in your top metros, your top coast, coastal elite, quote unquote, metros. It's always going to be higher in Boston than it is in Columbus, Ohio. And, and, and even if there is no inflation, the prices are always going to be way higher. So your money is going to go a lot further. You're going to be, you're, you're going to be a, a millionaire by the time you're 30. You're going to be a liquid millionaire by the time you're 35. And you're going to be worth between five and $8 million by the time you're 45 years old. I mean, that, that's, that's the path for these people. If you don't make disastrous financial decisions, if you don't have three or four divorces, um, if you don't have a gambling problem, uh, this path is one which, and I've known people, and I, and I know people, let me make this clear, that have taken this path. And then they retire in Florida, and they buy a house in Florida, until very recently, they could buy a really, really nice house in Florida for 500 grand. Not so much the case anymore because that whole north to south migration jacked up the prices, but they may come back down, starting to see that a little bit. They then move to Florida. They buy a house for 500,000 there. They keep the house up north if they don't like the summer heat and the hurricane season, or they get rid of it, depends whether they want to keep up with it and keep up with the property and pay the property taxes and all that. And you're worth five, six, seven, eight, ten million dollars inside of 45 or 50. 
You don't have to deal with the whole city rush. You don't have to deal with the city crime. You don't have to deal with the artificial drama and competitiveness involved in these small circles that exist within metroplexes. And they are small circles. Like if you're a lobbyist in DC, it's a, it's a small world. There are like 28,000 of us who are registered as lobbyists in DC, but it's a small world. You may as well live in a small town, even though DC's a major metroplex with Oh, a million residents within the district itself, but more like six, seven million if you consider the broader area, you know, places like Tyson's Corner and Ashburn and places where there's huge businesses. So this is what I'd recommend. I like Northern Virginia, in fact. You can be in a DC suburb, you can be in Loudoun County, work for a big company based in Ashburn, and you'd never know that you're anywhere near DC. I mean, you'd really never know you're anywhere near the depravity you see in Washington, D.C. proper. If you move to Chevy Chase, different story. You're right next door. Move to Arlington, different story. If you're way up in Ashburn or, or you're way up in, uh, in, in um, Sterling or Leesburg, or this is an area I happen to know, you're never going to know anything about D.C. Uh, so that's how I recommend you deal with that. It's, it's, it's a path that works for a lot of people. How expensive is it living in a city like London compared with compared to a Democrat hellholes like San Francisco or New York? You know, I mean, from what I understand, it's just like hopelessly expensive. Like some of these places, you have to understand, Tel Aviv is one of these places. I actually don't even see how you can do it outside of two situations. Either you are in the top 5% of what you do, and chances are, I mean, in top five out of the gate, meaning you're the guy who went to the white shoe law firm and made partner in two, three years. You're the all-star. And remember, it's not a knock on you, but chances are you're not. It is the top 5%. That means 95% are not. So then you can kind of just roll out of college and you live with some friends for a year and a half or two years or three years, and then you're boom and you're off to the races. Or, or you're second, third generation money, fourth generation, fifth, eighth generation money. Who knows? Because like, you know, you see these people too. And, you know, I kind of have considered myself part of that 5% group in terms of lobbying. I've done very, very well in just a short period of time and hopefully can continue to basically because I bring in business um, and, and service the business well. But you look at um, say people that would be, you know, my next door neighbors and, you know, most of them are in their fifties or their sixties or their forties or whatever, but some of them are also young like me. And you say like, Oh, he's 24, he's 26, he's 28. I wonder what, or she, or I wonder what they do. They must be another all-star like me. That's interesting. And sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. And you meet them and you're like, okay, something doesn't add up here. They went to Georgetown and they're now working at prestigious company, but these people are not bright. And then you scratch just one level deeper and you say, oh, so-and-so is their grandfather. So-and-so is their dad. So-and-so is their great uncle. Oh, I understand now. They, they kind of bought their way into Georgetown. They have a no-show job at the prestigious company run by their uncle's friend. And they have an allowance of $10,000 a month that drops into their bank account every single month. A lot of times they have a hard time even holding the no-show job, by the way. But they have a $10,000 a month allowance, $20,000 a month allowance, $50,000 a month allowance. Yes, I've seen it. A lot of times they're not really shy about it either. It's nothing I think that they should be ashamed of. It is what it is. We didn't, I didn't pick my parents. You didn't pick yours. They didn't pick theirs. It just is what it is. I don't knock them for it. But outside of those two cases, whether I mean, if, you, if you've got some huge multi-generational kind of launch pad that's just, you know, set up for you. And good for you if you do. Um, or you're just a top five percenter. I don't see how you can live in a place like London. I mean, really live in a place like London and do the things that you generally want to do. 
I don't think that means driving a Ferrari, but within reason, you can live some type of pleasant life where you're not living in a closet that's got rats, let's say. And outside that, I, I don't see how you can. Dubai's the same way. Tel Aviv is the same way. Dubai's not quite as bad. Tel Aviv's the same way. London, um, Manhattan. I mean, really, it's just, oh. So unless you're one of those two groups, I, I, I just, I don't see how you can do it. You can live the miserable life and, you know, you can do that till you're 35 and, you know, take advantage of being older and it took you 10 years to get good at what you do or whatever. But, you know, hey, it's up to you. Those are your choices. Uh, let's see here. Anything else in the chat? Um, I'm willing to bet most of your generation or three plus generation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of them are. You betcha. Yes. And it's not it's not even necessarily even a lot of times the money that's the significant part. It's all the network that comes with that. The money is usually quite significant, but the connections are even more important. And the fact that, oh, we're not going to fire Johnny because his dad's not going to be happy with me at the country club on Sunday. Johnny, just uh, don't come in. We don't want you fucking anything up. But uh, uh, no, you're still getting your paycheck. Just uh, come in once a week on Tuesday mornings. Okay. Yeah. So that happens too. And it's and And I'm not resentful of it at all. Resentment is a is an awful thing. You don't want to ever let that take root uh, within you. Um, send a question via email. I'm gonna I'm gonna check the questions on email on the next episode. Uh, so if you have an, a, a question for the next episode, we're now running. Let's see here, up to an hour and three. I had to reset the sound, so um, we will we will see uh, what happens there. Reminds me, 23 year old McKinsey consultants from my Ivy League schools. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean. You know, I mean, you meet these people, right? And you say, you're an Ivy Leaguer. You, you go to where? Because they're not intellectually impressive. And, and you can say, well, TikTok rotted their brains. Yeah, but TikTok kind of rots everyone's brain if they are absorbed in it. And what I'm saying is they're not any more impressive than the person who went to Georgia Tech with a TikTok obsession. In fact, the Georgia Tech person is usually more impressive because it's harder to kind of fake the engineering type majors. I mean, it's just harder to fake. You can go to Georgetown and if, if you're anointed into Georgetown, if you're anointed into even a place like Yale or Harvard and you're in a, let's say a, a soft skills area like uh, communications or political science or whatever, teacher gives you an A on your paper. It's subjective to a degree. And so you get an A on your paper. But if you're tasked with designing a bridge and the numbers are just all wrong. And that's a lot harder to get through on family connections. Um, you've never uh, addressed the affirmative action uh, case. Well, I just don't think, I don't, I, I don't think there's enough to say about it yet. I mean, we have to just see how that plays out. Yes. There's a case in which affirmative action could go away. We'll see what that means. We will see. What will be the effects of it? I don't think anyone knows. I mean, I've seen some projections where the affirmative action case will uh, actually make white participation in these schools go down by about 3%. It'll basically double Asian participation at a place like Harvard. It will drop black participation down to almost zero and drop Hispanic participation in half. That's what I've seen. I don't know how true that is. Whatever effects that it will have will be long term. And then the other challenge will be that, you know, remember a state like California didn't always, it wasn't always the, the hellhole that it is now. California voted against gay marriage in 2008. They also banned affirmative action in California. It was banned in California. Do you think that stopped leftist institutions from having affirmative action? No, they just flew it by a different name. And so, I think what you have to do is establish case law that is strong enough that people that can, can then bring action if the universities sim simply implement other ways of doing the exact same thing and they call it something slightly different or change the process a little bit around the edges. So that's going to be the real tell. Whatever will be the case, it's, it's not going to be something that is in time to make a difference to any of us really, it might make a difference to our children's generation um, because it's just going to take time, whatever it is. So that's my basic line on all of that. And if the Supreme Court kind of doesn't take down these policies in any way, shape or form, then uh, shame on them. 
shame on them. Uh, that would be just a, a, a total punch in the gut by these so-called conservative justices. I mean, frankly, the case should be 9-0. It should be 9-0 against affirmative action, but we know how that goes. So uh, anyway, guys, we're going to run here. It's been great to have you on this Thursday, November 3rd. I'll be back on Monday live here at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And then uh, thereafter, we're going to uh, we're going to have it out on podcast apps everywhere. If you have questions for that show, send them in via email to jacob at jacobwold.org or to jacobwold.org slash contact. You can support the show financially uh, at jacobwool.org slash podcast. That's jacobwool.org slash podcast. We use the Gumroad platform there for recurring donations. You can also just go on Cash App. On Cash App, it is Real Jacob Wool. Uh, that is the Cash App. So it, it's really great to have you. It's value for value. I'm powered by all of you. So if you get value from the show, you send value back our way in the form of uh, uh, information in some cases, in the form of uh, money in other cases, or both oftentimes. So thanks for watching, everyone. I appreciate it. I appreciate the kind words. I appreciate you tuning in uh, and keeping the show going. And I'll see you on Monday right here live at 2 p.m. Eastern time on podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. Have a great weekend. I'll see you Monday.